everyone. Uh, welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here today with uh, Alex Stapp from the uh, Institute of Progress. Alex, how you doing? Good. How you doing, Richard? I'm doing great. So um, I met you, We I think we knew each other from Twitter beforehand, but I met you at the Emergent Ventures Conference in DC a few months ago. Um, we're both, you know, products of uh, products of Emergent Venture Grants and sort of the Tyler Cohen network. Um, and, you know, I've always been interested in your Twitter feed and I was interested that, you know, you told me you were going to start uh, Institute for Progress at the time and I was looking forward to it. And it's, it's finally here. Um, I guess the first question I want to ask is you announced on January 20, right? Uh, yeah, it sounds right. Yeah. Uh, eight days ago. So yep. January 20th. So, so uh, yeah, we're recording this 28th. So why a Thursday? Because I usually announce stuff on Monday or Tuesday. Cause I, my theory has always been, you get most, att- you get most possible attention because the weekend, everything sort of resets. So why did you go with the Thursday? I think that's an interesting choice. That's a great, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so we, we were also planning for a Monday, uh, two months ago, we were planning for the, that Monday that week. So four days earlier. And then we, one of us checked the calendar and we're like, wait, that's Martin Luther King Day. That's, that's a bad idea, obviously. Uh-huh. Insensitive. Yeah. And so then we switched to the Tuesday. And, you know, just this is the classic, like, the website's not quite ready. You don't want to make, make sure all your ducks in a row are ready before you launch. The content is very good and, and finalized. And so we ended up pushing just a couple of days. And we, we thought basically Fridays, you definitely don't want to launch on a Friday because people are kind of checked out for new things. And we weren't. We didn't want to wait to the following Monday. And so, mm. our theory is basically that uh, if you have a large platform on Twitter and a lot of supporters who have prominent audiences themselves who want to help boost your message, it doesn't matter that much. Like as long as it's a not a Friday or a holiday, or there's not like major breaking news. And so the only thing that would have prevented us from launching on th- that Thursday was if like probably something on the level of like Justice Breyer announcing his retirement, where like. That's all anyone wants to talk about on Twitter, and they might see your thing, but not be like as excited about it or talk to talk about it. Um, but besides that, we feel confident enough in our audience and our supporters' audiences that we can get our message out there. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think the people probably who are paying attention to your think tank and people who are uh, paying attention to you know what I'm doing and what we're we're doing at CSPI, I think those are 24 seven kind of people uh, when it comes to politics. I think they're very passionate. So you know, a Saturday is not that different uh, from a Monday. Um, maybe if you're doing you know something broader, I don't know. It, it, you know, who knows if it's even if it's even true? Just someone told me you know Monday or Tuesday is best. I said that makes intuitive sense, and that's sort of the rule I've been going by. But you know, who who really knows? I mean, it's not not empirically tested. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so why why start a, why start a think tank out of all the things you can do with your life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think a couple. It's I think from two angles, I guess one one personal and one more more macro level. So on a personal level, I think you should think about as an individual in your own career how you can have the most impact and what skills you have that differentiate you from others. And they open the classic like, what's your competitive advantage in the marketplace? And so both me and my co-founder, Caleb Watney, um, we worked in think tanks for the last five or six years in DC. And so we've seen a lot of that ecosystem. And that's where our skill set comes from, doing like a lot of research and advocacy on technology and innovation issues. And we've kind of seen the inner workings of how these organizations work. We've had the pleasure of working at a lot of great institutions. Um, but once you're on the inside, you also, you know, people like us, you have a lot of strong opinions. Caleb and I both have interests in a lot of different policy areas beyond just narrowly defined technology and innovation policy. And so we've been talking for a couple of years now about like, you know, what if one day we did our own thing? Um, how differently would we run it? Like, and the, the cool thing about starting a new institution is that you can start with a clean slate. So taking over something that was pre-existing would take 
it would be a lot harder to kind of turn it around or um, change the inertia or momentum of, uh, of a pre-existing institution. And so we were really excited to start from a clean slate, hire the very best people from day one, um, start a new mission, and really just build out a new institution. And there, I mean, we were also felt the increasing desire for new institutions in DC. So a lot of people are very excited about funding, supporting, and promoting work from new organizations as well. And so we thought the time was right for that and decided to pull the trigger uh, last summer. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I encourage people to announce your sort of a uh, mission statement. Your it's pro- progress as a policy choice by uh, you and Caleb, and you guys are focusing on three topics, right? Uh, uh, mostly, is it, is it exclusively those? Three? How 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 like uh, hard of a rule is that? Like, if someone comes at you with something great about housing to do a report, because you do do that construction stuff, right? And that doesn't fall under meta science, biosecurity, or immigration. So these are just sort of guideposts. They're not, you know, they're not all inclusive of everything you're doing. Correct. Yeah, they're actually where there's the starting areas. And so um, we have our long run plan is to be a general purpose think tank and work on every major policy area that we deem as important and we can add value to the debate. Um, Our mission statement is very broad. We are a think tank dedicated to accelerating scientific, technological and industrial progress while safeguarding humanity's future. And so it's very broad and can encompass a lot of different things. Um, For the first three policy areas that you mentioned, so meta science, you know, how do we fund science? How do we change the incentives of science? Um, immigration, how do we get more, in particular, scientists, doctors, engineers to come to the U.S.? How do we be proactive about um, high-skilled immigration? And then on uh, the third area of biosecurity, a lot of that is how do we prevent future pandemics? How do we mitigate their effects? And then also how do we accelerate some of the um, low-hanging fruit in biotech? Um, how do we do really cool things, you know, with mRNA technology or, or CRISPR? Um, and so those are our three areas to start, but we, w- we wanted just people to show progress, show that our model works in those areas and kind of focus the organization, um, on, on three areas that we deem important, neglected, and tractable, which is kind of an effective altruist framework for thinking about which issues in the world to work on. Um, but we definitely plan on, on adding new areas over time. So you mentioned housing, I would say urbanism as a policy category area is one of the likeliest areas we expand into next. And I'd probably add climate and energy to that as as well as an area that we think is sufficiently important that if we found the right person to lead that area for us, we'd add it pretty quickly. Uh So when you're trying to be a policy, you know, relevant think tank, there's the stuff you do that's sort of outer facing, you know, you write reports, you promote them on social media, you know, you appear on podcasts, you're part of the the discourse Um, for, you know, and this might be, this might be a boring or easy question for somebody a little bit more uh, uh, familiar with sort of the inner workings of DC. What goes on behind the scenes of a successful think tank and trying to influence policy? And what what are you guys going to do that's the same or different? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question because it's hard. It's hard for outsiders to understand how it works. I think a lot of um, a lot of our friends are in Silicon Valley or work in tech or, or adjacent fields, and they're often skeptical of DC. It's you know known as the swamp, or it's known as like it's just gridlock. Nothing gets done in DC. It's mostly um, a barrier or a bottleneck to progress or innovation, and they don't see it enabling a lot of stuff. And we think that's that's a misguided or at least a distorted view of what happens in DC. Um, so first, what we do differently, I think. Um, we do a lot of the standard think tank things in terms of the research and advocating, you know, directly in person on the Hill or at government agencies. Um, but we're actually tilted more towards that behind the scenes game because our, we've built a structure for our think tank where the stakeholders uh, are aligned with us on that. And so what I mean by that is that the traditional think tank funding model is being funded by individuals, corporations and foundations, some, you know, mix of those three funding sources. And oftentimes you're working with professional program managers at those organizations 
who need to justify their own jobs. And they need to tell their boss, like, here's an output that I got from the think tank um, on the X, Y, or Z issue. It's extremely hard to measure actual policy impact. Um, did that, out, that you know, legible output actually affect a policy outcome? Very hard to know. Um, and oftentimes, <laughs> the person doesn't really care about the policy impact. They want to just, like, you know, do a good job and, and make their bosses happy, which mm -hmm. is reasonable, of course. Um, but we, we actually do really care about having policy impact. And not maximizing just for explicit deliverables. Like you know, there are a lot of a lot of webinars during COVID. We we think webinars in general are kind of overrated in terms of do people actually watch them or attend them. But it's an easy thing that people can checkbox for a donor and say um, we did a thing that we committed to doing. Or we'll definitely write research papers. But you know, should we commit twelve months ahead of time to writing a forty-page paper on X topic? Not necessarily if it's not the right time to deliver new research on that, or if the legislative cycle is not attuned to it. And so we're doing much more flexible behind the scenes things, um, like working with closely with legislative staff on, you know, the way policymaking works in D.C. now is we have these, like, every year we have a few must-pass pieces of omnibus legislation where they just pack everything from a ton of different policy areas into one bill. And so can you insinuate yourself into that process, tweak things on the margin here or there, edit, edit language, make helpful recommendations? You often can't, like, drive that process because then you're an annoying voice in the room. But uh -huh. if, you, you can, if you can align yourselves with the policymaker staff and say, what are your guys' goals? Okay, here's where we have overlap. And, I, and we can help you. We can be, uh, what the term is legislative subsidy to you all. We can help you with expertise. We can help you with time and resources to help you advance your goals so long as they overlap with our think tank's goals. And it's a lot of that quiet behind the scenes work. And the last thing I'll add to that is it's a lot of coordinating with other partners. So as a small new think tank, we rely on working with great, um, all the other think tanks like uh, the Federation of American Scientists, Schmidt Futures, um, Zach Graves from Lincoln Network is on our board as well on the center right. He does great work for his think tank. And so um, often you can have more of an impact in DC policy world if you're coming as a chorus of voices and saying like, we all, we all as quote unquote experts agree that this is the best policy and that helps push the ball forward with, with staff. Yeah. So that, that's interesting. So you, you guys are, you said you are sort of working on the margins, you're suggesting things, you're providing ideas to the, to the uh, staff. Um, so, but who writes, who writes the meat of the bill? It's, it's the staffer like, okay, so you have a congressman, you have Smith. Um, and so he has somebody on his staff. They're not ca like career professionals, like Smith finds them. Um, and you know, Smith and Jones are congressmen and Smith and Jones is, uh, uh, they're, they're like top, you know, legislative person basically writes, is there like a specialized bureaucratic class that, that writes basically the laws in this country? Is, is that how it works? Are there career officials just sort of explain it to me? Like I, like I know nothing because I don't. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, I mean, these are not like career civil servants in the sense that, you know, you'd find in like regulatory agencies that have been around for 40 years and, and stick with uh, the same jobs regardless of who's, you know, wins elections. I mean, these are uh, politically appointed staff. So the people writing the bills um, are either on committees, which are the most important staffers, uh, a committee, um, say if it's a, a bill related to healthcare um, from the health committee, um, the H stands for, for healthcare. Um, the committee staff there will probably take, take point on controlling the legislative text of that particular bill. And then obviously um, leadership offices, bills, bills in DC are very leadership driven. A lot mm -hmm. of rank and file members now complain they don't have enough input in the process, but it's just a reality on the ground that um, because it's this, again, omnibus must pass situation, the leadership of both parties, wh whoever's in power, feel they wanna have tight reins on the actual 
uh, drafting process and, you know, horse trading process. Uh-huh. And so um, getting into talking to staffers and leadership offices on committee staff is the most important. Um, and those people often have been around for a long time. So they have a lot of expertise. Um, so again, okay, I, I don't want to conflate them with like, quote unquote, deep state or like people who you know are civil right. servants for decades, but they often have a lot of experience. And it really is a highly technical skill of how to write legislative language correctly that won't break other pieces. It's all they're all interconnected and interdependent upon each other. Every clause is referencing another clause, right? And so um, it's highly technical language. Some of the think tanks we respect the most have people on staff at their think tanks who have had that job before uh, when they previously worked on Capitol Hill. And so having people like that in your network who can know what a helpful suggestion is versus a you know unhelpful suggestion during that process is really key. Yeah. One thing I really like about your uh, think tank is it's very meta aware of sort of what it's doing in the sense that, you know, you say we have these issues and we pick these issues for these specific reasons. And you even do a little bit of a sort of political analysis of, um, you know, what makes sense and what, you know, what's feasible and what's not. Uh, so when I look at the the three main topics, you start with biosecurity, uh, meta science and immigration. It seems to me that two of them are not clearly politicized, right? Uh, uh, Meta science and biosecurity. I think you know. I don't think anyone's going to get hot on a cable news uh, over right. either one of those things. Immigration is a, is a little bit different. So the border is you know the most polarized thing, right? Illegal immigration is the most polarized, but still. Like everything about immigration is to a large extent polarized. You often find uh, even denunciations of high-skilled immigration um, among Republican congressmen and media personalities. Uh, so, you know, was was what was the sort of thinking behind including immigration as an issue with the other two? Because it's you know, I, I, I know you're trying to be sort of nonpartisan, and you know, the issue is important, but you know, there could be could be risks there of rubbing people the wrong way. How, how did you think about like? including that uh, in your uh, issues that that, uh, that you publicize as, you know, motivating the think tank. Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment there. I think it's definitely more polarized and more partisan than the other two of our, of our first three starting issues. I think one is just recognition that how important we view this issue. So using that, again, that framework of neglected, tractable, and importance, um, this is one of the less tractable, but it's just so important, um, amount of human capital and talent we have in the country really is a driving factor of uh, future innovation and economic growth. And so recognizing that it's just extremely high on the important scale. And then I think we're going to spend a lot of our time focusing more on the high-skilled end of the immigration debate, which we think is more tractable than the rest of the debate. Like you mentioned the border is very um, controversial as a topic, uh, very heated, extremely partisan. Um, and we support immigration of all levels, but we want to move the ball forward where we can. And so um, you can do that in two ways on high-skilled immigration. Uh, one, obviously legislative or through executive action. And so right now there are uh, a few bills going through Congress that have um, elements and provisions that increase the number of uh, green cards available for uh, high-skilled immigrants, especially for STEM, uh, STEM graduate students. Um, and so we'll see if those actually stay in the final bills as they get passed. Um, and whether they do or not, we think there's a lot of scope for action on the executive side. And so this is where, you know, it's not because it's the executive and a democratic administration, it doesn't matter that much if it activates the right um, in negative polarization sense because um, the scope for action is so large. And so we think that um, on the O-1 visa, for example, uh, there's just the Biden administration announced reforms uh, just a few days ago uh, that they're trying to make it more explicit process for immigrants of extraordinary ability to come to the United States. It's an uncapped visa program. 
Um, and the hardest part about it is people don't know, like, what does it mean to be have extraordinary ability? How do you define that? What will an adjudication, adjudication officer determine that you fit the bill? And these, these applications can often run up to 400 pages because people don't know what they need to prove. Um, and so Biden administration is adding clarity to that. We think that's amazing um, because we do think that there's huge value in, in bringing the next startup entrepreneur or the next um, engineer uh, or scientist in the United States. We are the, you know, the global R&D lab. Um, we create so much technology that is really a public good for the world. Um, and we want to keep the U.S. at the frontier of, of technology. And so, and the last thing I'll note is that uh, if you look at polling, immigration is obviously controversial. Um, a majority of Americans support either keeping immigration levels the same or increasing them. But the minority who are opposed to immigration and want to reduce immigration uh, often rank it as a more important issue. So there's like an intensity of preferences mismatch here, um, even though a majority of Americans do support more immigration. But if you ask them about high-skilled immigration, the margins go way up. And even a majority of Republicans support increasing high-skilled immigration. And I believe across Americans as a whole, it's greater than 70% of Americans support um, high-skilled immigration and think that it strengthens our country. And so by focusing on that issue, we think we can get more bipartisan support and actually make it a more tractable issue. Yeah, I think that's right. I think if you look at the polling, it's hard to find um, opposition to uh, high-skilled immigration. Although, you know, some of the most motivated, uh, you know, to participate in politics, there are a lot of people who don't like immigration who thinks it's the number one issue. And a lot of them are in the commentariat or uh, public intellectuals of sorts. And those people are hostile. But yeah, exactly. The, uh, you know, the public opinion for shutting off high-skill immigration, it's just not there. And so I guess you're right. It is a, it can be a tractable issue if you think about it. Uh, you think about it from that perspective. Um, you know, the other thing, uh, you, the, you know, fa that's fascinating that I found in your, uh, you know, it's sort of introductory article. Um, you talked about the, uh, the, the secret Congress. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that figures into your thinking? Yeah, for sure. This is an idea we actually borrowed from uh, Matt Iglesias and Simon Bazelon. They published this in Matt's Substack newsletter called Slow Boring, I believe last summer. Um, and it's kind of an idea that's been pretty influential in our thinking. And it's basically just spelling out again, like how does modern legislating work in DC? Like, obviously, we can talk. We have a whole different conversation about um, rulemaking and the regulatory process um, post when a bill becomes a law. But at the, at the legislative stage, like, how does a bill become a law um, in, in the modern uh, American context? And what I think Matt and Simon persuasively argue is that there's this weird paradox where the issues that are talked about the least, especially on like cable news or by, by political pundits, those are the issues that you actually can move the ball forward and are more tractable because it doesn't activate a lot of this um, negative polarization. And so uh, the, secret, the secret in secret Congress means like you don't want to talk about it too much um, because that just decreases the odds that you're, you'll actually um, get things done. And I believe there's actually like, now I'm thinking about you know, Ezra Klein had a piece early in the Obama years about the bully pulpit, and it was published in the New Yorker. And it was just talking about how when Obama talked about it, and he made a big speech about a particular piece of legislation. The political scientists analyzed that and showed that the odds of it passing actually went down um, because it again activated that negative polarization. And so the one spin on this this thesis, and I don't, I don't think it's actually made it in the launch essay. We've cut a bit of the our theory of change and stuff. Um, but what we would add to that is that actually we think there's a sweet spot of salience because a lot of people tell us then like. So why would you do a think tank? Why are you on Twitter? If like talking about things makes them less likely to happen, like should yeah. you just like shut down what you're doing and not participate? Yeah. And it might be a little biased, of course, because this, this is our job. But we do think there's actually a sweet spot of having some salience, but not too much. Mm -hmm. And the sweet spot for us is that I think 
in this horse trading omnibus must pass legislative process, and again, these are like the annual appropriations bill, the Defense Reauthorization Act, um, you know, a reconciliation bill is treated almost as quasi must pass legislation because it's the one opportunity to get your, your wish list passed each year. Um, in these contexts, uh, you do need to persuade staffers and professionals in DC that your idea is a priority. And as the you know cutting happens from the top line revenue levels, um, when there's a lot of horse trading happening, that your idea doesn't get dropped and you know left behind as the train leaves the station. And so we think that's why that you know the elite conversation on Twitter matters so much. Actually, participating in the discourse matters because you need to convince during a Democratic administration, you need to convince Democratic staffers and their bosses that these are popular ideas for the party. At the very least, won't hurt them in elections, but hopefully will help them in elections. Um, and that it's within the Overton window. And this is what you know, a good Democrat or a good Republican would be willing to endorse in this process. Mm. Um, the thing you don't want to do is you don't want to push it so hard that it gets on Rachel Maddow, Tucker Carlson. Um, if you want any kind of bipartisan support for your bill, which you don't always need, but sometimes do, um, that's just like, that's the kiss of death. And so we think there's a sweet spot right in the middle. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, the, the theory is sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of intention, intention with uh, sort of democratic ideals about how things are supposed to work, right? It's like, if the elites can get together and just sort of reason with each other, they can do smart things. If the, if the notice, if the masses notice too much, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to screw everything up, right? How, how, do you, how do you think about that? Is it just sort of a tension you just have to deal with? I mean, you're not a political philosopher, so you don't have to answer for this. You're just a person trying to have impact in the real world. But, you know, how, how much yeah. do you think about this and how do you think about it? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair tension to point out. I would say, one, I would put more of the onus on, I think, a lot of, there are a lot of um, demagogues out there. Um, I'm not a big fan of the populist um, swing in either part. Uh, in either political party. Um, I think they exploit things uh, in bad faith. And so, yes, you can get a lot of people riled up, um, which in some sense is democratic, but uh, I think oftentimes it's just uh, highly distorted and, again, just bad faith process. Um, and two, I would say that, you know, looking at what's popular, what actually gets done, like, is, is you know, pan- preventing the next pandemic, would that be popular if you pulled Americans? Like, no. This current pandemic cost the American economy $16 trillion, um, as, estimate from Harvard economists last year. And uh, look at ex- excess death numbers, a million Americans have died. Okay. So should we spend uh, $6 billion a year over 10 years to prevent or extremely mitigate the next pandemic? I think that's a great investment. You know, it's a, it's a, it would very likely be popular um, if you were to talk to a lot of Americans, but um this is not a short-term enough window for the current process to um, recognize or, in, or prioritize. And so it's our job to help bring in those future horizons and say, these are really long-run things that matter a lot. If you were able to have a conversation with the average American, I think we could actually persuade them these are popular and good for the country. Um, but the short-term narrow political incentives don't actually create always that great policymaking outcome. And so that's how we insert ourselves into the process. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's, yeah, that's fair. Right. A lot of just be, whatever, you know, it's not like anyone has a monopoly on saying, you know, just because they're the loudest voices or the thing that gets the most public salience at any one point. I mean, you can't just point that and say, oh, that's the most democratic thing. That's what the people want. You're right. The, the participants in the process are, you know, distorting and influencing the process itself. So uh, yeah, that's, I think that's, I think that all makes, uh, that all makes sense. Um 
you know, just go, uh, you know, this just going back. I mean, you touched on this a little bit, but the idea that, yeah, the, you're basically, you're trying to not, not be too salient, but also the problem is if you're, you can't motivate people, right. If you're not exciting enough, people aren't going to care enough. Um, and so do you worry that like, you know, if anything you, so, you know, things exist the way they do in DC policy is the way it is for a reason. Presumably, you know, somebody thought at some point that, uh, it made sense to do things a certain way, or there was some bureaucratic interest, or there was some, you know, public opinion reason why things had to be set up in one way, uh, and not the other. And so, you know, it's not, you know, I don't think it's as easy as somebody can just walk right in and say, um, you know, this is a bad idea. Let's do something else. You have to provide some motivation, uh, to po- politicians or you know, policy staff or whoever uh, is making these decisions. Um, so how do you think about that? How do you think about not being too salient, but also motivating people enough to affect change? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And I think maybe I'll expand on something I, I mentioned a bit earlier, which is that one, just at base, we have an incrementalist philosophy at the Institute for Progress, our, our new think tank, um, which is, you know, Wins on the margin in public policy matter so much. I think anyone promising whole-scale reform, you know, abolishing certain institutions or a radical change, one, they're, they're often likely to create more harm than good if they were able to achieve that because of unintended consequences. And, um, you know, the whole Chesterson, Chesterson fence argument of, like, why was this here in the first place? If you don't fully, fully understand it, you shouldn't remove the fence. Um, but two, it's highly unrealistic and <laughs> extremely unlikely to happen because, like you said, there were certain uh, forces that created that, that um, rule or law or institution in the first place. And so we think incremental improvement is, is the path forward. Um, and it's not just like incremental sounds small and like, oh, is that even important? Does it matter? But even incremental improvements in Washington, D.C. public policy in particular, and this is why we don't focus on state and local policy and why we don't do international policy. Why don't we want to just focus so we can, you know, actually develop expertise and have an impact? But we also think this is the most important lever to pull in world global policy, because so many other countries follow U.S. policy. If U.S. Pol- if US policy gets things right on tech and innovation, um, those create global public goods that spill over the rest of the world. Um, so there are myriad reasons why D.C. policy um, is the most important and incremental reforms matter. And then, like, how do you get those incremental reforms? Working with policymakers, you can't impose yourself onto the process. Like, these people are very busy. They have hard jobs. They're underpaid. And most staffers, even if they focus on, they're lucky if they get just, you know, just only healthcare. Often, many staffers have multiple uh, policy areas they cover. But even if they're lucky enough to cover healthcare, healthcare is an insanely complex, huge field. And it's hard to expect a 25-year-old to actually have real expertise in that area. So they need help, but they can't just go in any direction. Um, people have this like view of, of DC that lobbyists just run things. I think that's over overstated. Um, uh, when you're influencing the process, you need to first identify what is their boss's goal? What do they care about? Why do they care about it? Is it because they have uh, companies in their district, their home district that employ a lot of people and create good jobs for them? Um, what is their political philosophy, ideology? What issues matter to them? And if you can align yourself with that and show them that you're helping them and making their jobs easier, then you're much more likely to get the incremental change incremental change you want um, to see happen. And so that's how we kind of view the process is like, kind of picking and choosing, really being really flexible of who we're working with um, and finding partners that we can help them advance their goals while advancing our own goals. 
Yeah. So uh, just to go back to what you said again, I mean, I keep going back to the idea of like who the policy staff is and what they're doing. So you said they're 25 years old, I heard, and they're underpaid, which this seems like very important. They see, it seems like they are the ones who basically write the laws for the country and they're just underpaid 25 year olds right out of college. Is that right? Or are they are they more experienced uh, people working above them? Like who? who you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see the lay of the land and basically how it yeah, works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll say that the median staffer is a 25 year old on Capitol Hill. Um, but definitely the people who are doing the primary drafting are often older. So these are more like mid thirties, I would say. Um, and they do, do often have like, you know, a decade of experience or more because it's such a complex demanding job. Um, but their support staff and like the teams of people in the congressional offices, these are mostly people in their twenties. Um, I saw a report recently that the median house staffer salary is under $60,000. It's like $58,000 per year wow. or something, which, you know, isn't that it's one, one? It's below median household income in the United States. But then you need to also remember that DC is an expensive, cost of living city, and these are all almost exclusively college-educated and sometimes graduate education um, jobs. And so the opportunity cost is much higher. They could go get paid much more in the private sector, um, and the hours are grueling um, on Capitol Hill. They have to often work evenings and weekends, and um, it's just ins- insanely demanding. And so, yeah, they're <laughs> they need help and. Um, if you can be helpful to them at the right in the right way that helps them advance their goals, um, then you can be much more successful. And the people who get these jobs, so like when you you're like a Supreme Court clerk, usually you're the person who went to the you know uh, the top law schools, and you were like first in your class, and then you go clerk for uh, Ginsburg or Scalia or you know people who are <laughs> not anymore anyways, but other other yeah. Supreme Court justices. Um, are, are are these people like are they just hiring sort of you know state school graduates? Are they you know like if you're like the smartest conservative at Harvard, is going on the policy staff something you would do or, or not really? I'm just trying to get an idea of like the kind of people who who fill these jobs. Yeah, I would say maybe put them in two different buckets. Yeah, like the Supreme Court uh, clerks are definitely in a whole category of their own. Like they're almost exclusively hiring like the top uh, conservatives or liberals graduating from Ivy League schools who served on like law reviews and things like that. Um, There are so many more jobs on Capitol Hill. Um, staffers, communication staffers, legislative How many? So like how many would like McConnell have and how many would Schumer have and how many would like the typical congressman or senator have? Just ballpark. You don't have to like give ballpark. me Ballpark. Exactly. I think for, I think for uh, leadership, it's like, you know, more than a dozen, maybe up to a couple dozen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the smaller, like, you know, just rank and file members, they have um, six to 10 um, kind of full-time staff. And mm-hmm. then you also have to remember that committee staff are, are full-time. So there are people who, um, are just they just work for the committee, not necessarily a particular member of Congress. Um, and those are the more senior jobs. Those are the jobs that pay more. Um, they're the most desirable jobs um, in DC. And both the majority, majority and minority um, party on the committee have their own staff as well. Uh, whether you're in the majority or minority depends how many staff paid staff positions you get for that. Um, and so, yeah, so it varies widely by, you know, how senior is your member on, a com- on certain committees and are they in leadership, of course. Um, yeah, and, and, it's, yeah, and for those jobs, for the entry level, uh, you know, jobs, the sorting mechanism is much less like, did you go to an Ivy League school? It's, are you willing to work for $30,000 a year in Washington, D.C., even though you're a college graduate, um, which is, we advocate, all, it's not a primary issue for us, but we are definitely supporters of increasing pay for um, uh, these kinds of positions because we want one, we want the best people. We want to be able to um, recruit the best to serve in government. And two, you don't want this filtering mechanism to be whose parents can give them money to support, you know, the, the paying their rent in DC yeah. um, when it's so expensive. 
um, and things like that. And so often it's who's willing to take the unpaid internship, who's willing to work long hours for low pay. Um, and it, it creates bad outcomes sometimes. Yeah, that's interesting. That seems like a, uh, you know, there's, there's a, uh, what do you categories meta science? They're sort of like meta governance, right? You could think of, and like, this is like a meta governance issue. So yeah, I mean, who's actually writing the laws and who has power in DC? It's something, yeah, we don't think a lot about. We see the Supreme Court, we see, we see Congress, um, but obviously, you know, congressmen are not spending all their time writing the bills and negotiating themselves, right? Someone else has to do that work. So it's interesting to, to learn, to learn about that. I mean, I, I know a lot about politics, but I, I don't know DC, uh, as as well as you do, um, the uh, so uh, one place. So yeah, so we talked about uh, we talked about the legislature. Um, where does uh, and but the other place where policy gets made? Um, there's the bureaucracy, right? So how do you think about uh, working or influencing the bureau- the federal bureaucracy? You know, if you do do that, you talked a little bit about executive agencies. Um, maybe just talk a little more about that. Yeah, for sure, because it's, it's a whole different beast, and oftentimes for policy public policy, the rulemaking process and regulatory process is even more important than the legislative process. Because again, we don't pass that many bills um, annually anymore. They're, they're large and they matter, um, but oftentimes Congress is kicking the can down the road or like leaving a lot of discretion open to the agencies themselves. Um, under the Chevron deference doctrine, the agencies have pretty wide latitude in how they interpret their mandates. Um, and so, you know, helping again, the regulatory agencies advance their own goals um, and providing expertise to them is often the, the best method to do that. And so that uh, at previous think tanks that involved a lot of things like um, submitting public comments during the notice and comment period, whenever a new rule is posed, um, the agency has to allow for public comment over a multi-week or multi-month period. And often when they do finalize the rulemaking, they cite in footnotes um, justifications for why they made a particular decision. They cite public comments that were submitted. And, you know, Public comments vary by issue. Like on the net neutrality thing, there were thousands and thousands of public comments of people just being like, I support net neutrality, or I have some people saying I oppose net neutrality. Um, but on most of these issues, it's like a small handful of people writing, you know, not one or two sentences, but like 10 to 20 pages of like well-cited, well-supported, well-evidenced um, research of why a, rule, a reg- regulation or new rulemaking should um, look a certain way. So you can provide your expertise to actually influence that process. Um, but again, I would say it's a lot of it's insider outsider dynamic. So if you have connections to certain individuals, usually political employees in those agencies, and you're talking to them, you can say, what are the political battles you're fighting internally and how can we help you win them? Um, because a lot of people think that there's like a, maybe like the, the green lantern theory of change, where it's just like, if the head of an agency wants something to happen, it's like just going to happen automatically. And often you have to think about like, these people don't actually, as individuals, have much power. They have to coordinate with a lot of different actors in the political system. And so often they're making tons of trade-offs um, based on who has the most political power or who's winning the argument of the day. And so you got to find your champions for your issues in the regulatory agencies and then give them as much ammunition as possible. And talk to them often about, like, what would be helpful to you? Like, get, like screen an idea with them and say, if we, if we came out with like this, would that actually help you or hurt you in your political battle? I think a lot of times people don't realize, like, they're actually doing more harm than good because the person internally, it would be your idea or your paper or your whatever would actually um, work in the opposite of the intended direction. And so really coordinating closely with insiders who are your champions is a big part of our philosophy for regulatory change. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds like, um, yeah, it's, it sounds like the, the process just matters. Um, so let me ask this, is, is it like, do you feel like when they're, uh, 
so it's, so it seems like the um, the process is very like it requires specific on the ground knowledge, right? Like me, I live in California. If I just sat here and started submitting comments uh, to agencies for various things, like I have no idea what the influence of that would be. Like maybe I'd make good arguments, and maybe you know on average it would be good. But it seems like I don't have sort of the localized knowledge, the relationships. If I don't know anybody in the agency, I might be hurting my cause, or I might be having uh, no effect at all. So it sounds like you know sort of your theory of change and what you're doing and why you specifically have to, how, how, uh, where exactly in DC are you? You're, uh, we're, 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 my, my office that I'm currently in right now, we are, um, by the Noma Metro. Um, so we're just North of the Capitol, but I can walk to the Capitol in less than 10 minutes. Yeah. So I've spent some, yeah, I don't know DC that well. I've spent some time there, but I've been around like the think tank space and, and Capitol Hill. And it's interesting how it's, how clustered it is, right? It's all within, you know, uh, literal, literally blocks. Um, so the idea, so the idea, so what I'm getting from what you're saying is basically that's very, very necessary. Um, you're, you need to have these personal relationships. You need to know what's going on in whatever agency, you know, you're, you're trying to influence in addition to knowing the policy specifics and knowing your stuff and thinking about the politics, right? So it's, it's sort of, of a, um, you know, it, it makes sense that, you know, you are, you are where you are and you really couldn't do it from anywhere else. Is, is that right? Correct. Yeah. I can't even, I can't overemphasize this uh, enough that um, when we were thinking about starting this institution, I mean, we started it during COVID. And so a lot of companies and other organizations are going fully remote um, and people often try to influence the policy. Like you're obviously, you're a part of the discourse uh, the political discourse in the United States and you're in California. So people do participate from um, around, the, around the country and around the world. But what do you think really, if, you're, if your goal is to have policy impact and you're starting a new organization um, and your goal is to influence uh, US federal policy, you kind of have to be on the ground in DC. And so we can't be fully remote. Um, so we, you know, we have two full-time staffers in addition to Caleb and myself. Um, when, we, when we posted those jobs and we're doing the recruiting process, we were clear that um, you have to be able to do in-person uh, meetings in DC. Um, we have our staff come in at least three days a week to the office. Um, and yeah, it's because DC runs on personal relationships. It built, runs on trust. You need to be able to get a coffee or grab a drink with a congressional staffer or someone in an agency at a moment's notice um, to get their feedback on something. And just being in person helps build that that trust and that rapport. Um, and yeah, I'll maybe just use a concrete example of like Caleb, my co-founder, is running, um, he, leads, he leads our immigration portfolio. And something he's been doing a lot of work on is uh, called the um, International Entrepreneur Rule, which was a rule that was started in the Obama administration, went dormant during the Trump administration, and now is coming back under the Biden administration. Basically, it's just a way to bring more entrepreneurs to the United States. Um, and it's the closest thing we have to like a startup visa that a lot of other um, developed countries have already. And, you know, one, this needs, it's currently an executive rule, but it needs to be kind of cemented into law. And so we, we're trying to push for some legislative action on this. Um, so it can't be just overturned in the next Republican administration. And so what Caleb is doing is creating a coalition of partners, other think tanks who are supportive of this rule, um, immigration attorneys who work in this area full time. And, you know, that's the, the group you need to understand how this rulemaking works, um, as well as some immigrants and student student groups um, and really bringing all these partners to the table. And then Caleb is drafting coalition letters, op-eds, articles, and then he's talking to people within inside USCIS and saying, would this be helpful to you all as you're looking at immigration, um, uh, new immigration regulations? And so kind of screening with them ahead of time. So people don't understand this, that anyone, um, if you have a, a good idea and you have substantive feedback to help, oftentimes you just email people in the agencies and say, can I meet with you on this substantive matter to discuss it? 
they will meet with you. Hmm. Um, you can't waste their time. And I can't say they'll always say yes, but oftentimes yeah. way more than like, than you would think they're willing to meet with you to discuss policy matters. Hmm. Um, and then that, and that's when you, that's when you filter and say, would this be helpful? What are your goals? How can, how can we be of assistance to you um, on these, pro- on these processes? And so being in DC is just instrumental for that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, yeah. Very interesting. Do you see yourself sort of as a, um, you're sort of a, you're sort of a, you know, a beachhead or sort of a, you know, a, infiltrator that has a bad uh, bad <laughs> bad connotation but you're sort of a representative of people who don't necess- aren't necessarily naturally attracted to politics i mean i meet people in business or i meet people in tech and you know it seems like this progress you know the prog- the idea of progress studies um and like you know effective altruism which is the other uh, uh, sort of intellectual current that i think you guys are coming out of you know they're, they're from they're uh, they're outside dc right so progress studies was start uh, was thought up basically by uh, patrick collison and Tyler the Cohen effect of altruism. I don't, I don't know the history of that, but it started in the Bay area. I, I'm, uh, uh, you know, a strong I'm a, in the Bay area. I would say the main intellectual foundation is actually in Oxford. Um, right. there are institutions there, uh, global priorities Institute and others. Um, this is Nick Bostrom, Will McCaskill, Toby Ord. Yeah. Um, a lot of, a lot of the founding thinkers who have written the similar texts and effect of altruism are in the, I would say, so I'd say number one, Oxford, number two, the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So, so not DC, right? Um, not, not DC. No, there's a burgeoning community, but it's definitely smaller. Yeah. No, Tyler is, you know, from George Mason, which is in the area that I don't think we consider him part of the part of the DC scene. Uh, right. So yeah, so you have, so you're sort of like the representative of these people with great, you know, great ideas, interesting ideas, um, who haven't had um, much representation in uh, politics. The you know, especially the highest level of politics, the, you know, these sort of the, uh, 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 you know, the sort of the, you know, being inside the system. Um, and so, do you I mean do you think about like you, you know, do you think about you as like yourself as like you know and all humility sort of like as a pioneer like you're making other people think that okay you can actually take ideas and translate them into policy like okay like the cultural stuff will always be there the foreign policy stuff will always be there people will always debate that and people attracted to that stuff will always want to be around dc and want to want to do stuff on that um but you're sort of you're making another kind of sort of politics and influence possible do do you see you guys see yourselves like that definitely that's definitely what we aspire to be and i think like I said, Caleb and I, we've been friends for uh, at least four years now, um, and we've been working together. We, we worked together at the Progressive Policy Institute in our last job for more than a year, worked very closely together. And then we talk about this kind of stuff all the time, and we would say, like, you know, where is the progress studies think tank? Where is the effective altruism think tank in D.C.? Um, and for progress studies, probably the closest thing people would say is Mercatus, because that's, that's Tyler Cowen's um, think tank affiliated with George Mason University. Um, but really... Again, for path dependence reasons, probably more than anything else, like Mercatus is known as a libertarian think tank in DC. They're a large institution and that's a brand they're proud of. They do great work, um, but they're not going to change overnight to become more of this emphasis on state capacity and, you know, definitely not coded as libertarian um, progress on these issues that we care about. And so um, there's really no other actor in the space that we think is, was doing that kind of work in DC. Um, and then on effective altruism, there are definitely single issue think tanks that do great work. So I'm thinking of Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown, which is a new think tank started in the last few years. They do great work on national security and technology, in particular artificial intelligence and kind of the, the race with China on technology issues. Uh, and Employ America, they do macroeconomic policy, very influential in Federal Reserve um, uh, nominations process and other macro level issues. Very small team dedicated to that, that one issue, doing great work. Um, but no multi-issue uh, effective altruist think tank. And so we just kept looking around and being like, 
if not us, then who, right? Like, mm. like why, why hasn't this happened yet? And so it could have been, maybe it's a bad idea and doesn't need to exist, but we thought it was a good idea. Um, and we decided not to wait around anymore. And I'm actually talking to one of our friends, Mark Letter, who's founder of the Charter Cities Institute. Um, he really gave us the final push we needed last sum- early last summer to say, look, like guys, like there are donors who want to support new institutions. Um, and this is an idea that needs to happen. We, I, think, I think you guys are well suited to do it. And that kind of just gave us the last final shove to be like, yeah, let's just pull, let's pull the trigger on this. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was similar uh, to my thinking in starting uh, CSPI. I was basically talking to people and I was not happy with sort of a lot of social science and how it was being done. And I'm like, you know, somebody should do this other organization that's doing something else. And they're like, well, what about you? And I said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and then I finally said, okay, what about me? Yeah. You, you get, you, you get used to the uh, idea eventually. So, I mean, I guess, yeah, a word of advice to anyone out there, just because no one has done something before that sounds like a good idea, um, doesn't mean it can't be done. Right. It just means that no one has done it. And if everyone thinks, you know, why should it be me? You know, you can, you can imagine there's a lot of sort of complacency and inertia, um, and the kind of, and like risk aversion and the kinds of things people do. Um, totally. yeah, I would just, just to add on that a little bit, cause I feel passionate about is that I think I think the median person in DC and even and even the median American is way too risk averse. Like I would say, like even irrationally risk averse. Yeah. People view so many things as um, to borrow, borrow a metaphor. I think from I first heard from Jeff Bezos at Amazon is like um, people think of so many things as as one way doors. Like if you make this decision and walk through the door, you can never go back, and like you're committed to this like future life path forever. And the vast, vast majority of decisions in life are two-way doors. You can go through, if things don't work out, you can come back the same door and like start over or, you know, um, try again, try something else. And so I think people should just take more risks, start new things. If it doesn't work out, failure is okay. Um, As long as you act with integrity and try your best, most people will just respect respect you more for trying in the first place and you'll have opportunities. And so Caleb and I realized like, if this doesn't work out, we can get other think tank jobs. We have good networks. People support our work, um, want to see us succeed. And so we think we have a very high chance of success and we're confident in the odds of our institution being here in 10 years and being much larger. But even in the, the worst case scenario where it doesn't work out, we're okay with that. And I think that I want to encourage a lot of my friends and people I know um, to take more risks. And you know, if things don't work out, like you're going to be okay, even though it seems scary. Yeah, I agree. And I think one thing that made me sort of less risk averse in life was reading some evolutionary theory somewhere, which basically the, you know, the idea that why humans are sort of pathologically risk averse and, uh, uh, just the way we're living today is because if you think about the you know the environment where we were uh, evolutionarily adapting to so like you know you get nervous about talking to some person right um the you know the idea was in the in the distant past you would only have like a small village and if you made a fool out of yourself right you would be uh, you know kicked out of the village if you if you went and you talked to the wrong uh, woman who was attractive she was paired up with you know the strongest guy in the village he would come club you over the head you know and you and and you die right so it was actually right. an existential you know screwing up socially was actually a matter of life and death. And we bring that hardware um, into today's world. And we think if I start this think tank or I start this new kind of career, or there's an entrepreneurial opportunity that's sort of a off the path that everyone else is following. Um, you know, something inside you says, I'm going to, I'm going to die. Right. <laughs> and, and you're not going to die. Yes. You're not going to die. You might waste a, you know, a year or two of your life, but you'll learn something and you might actually succeed. Um, so yeah, it's important to sort of, you know, overcome those primitive emotions and, you know, go out there and do something. And I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. Um, 
Are you um, so so? You know, you've had seven days plus plus one. I have it open on Thursday. We're recording this on Friday, um, January twenty eighth. Um, how's the reception been so far? Um, you know, what what have you seen? What's surprising? What's encouraging? What's maybe discouraging? You know, what, what you know? What are what are your thoughts? Let's get them on the historical record because 10, 20 years from now, when Institute for Progress has you know changed American society, we can look back and we can see what you were thinking in the first week. Definitely, let's mark it down. I mean, I wish I had like actually written down. Uh, Expectations before launch because now I'm just trying to remember like exactly what I was thinking going into it. Yeah. Um, but as far as I can tell, I think I, I, for any reasonable purpose, I exceeded my expectations um, significantly on um, a couple margins I can talk about. So one, just the reception of people on Twitter, which again is like not the only thing that matters, but for elite discourse, it really is really important. Uh, you know, I, I think it, I think it it's sort of is the only thing that matters. I mean, I look at the traffic <laughs> for my website. I look at the traffic for my Substack. Um, it's, you know, Twitter is the dominant force. And then like, I look at like stories and, uh, you know, like when Twitter like blew up, oh, why doesn't Biden, you know, uh, send everyone uh, rapid uh, COVID tests? And then like, you know, it just happens. And then I saw like the N95 thing. People are like, oh, why are they talking about cloth masks? N95s work. And then like it started to happen. So, you know, I'm starting to think actually Twitter, Twitter is all that matters. <laughs> but yeah, totally. go on. yeah, I'm glad you said it. You can say it. I, I, what I would say is that um, uh, there's a meme also on Twitter, funny enough. Um, certain people like to say that Twitter isn't real life. It's a reminder that like the kinds of groups on there aren't representative of the American electorate overall. It's much more left wing, much more progressive. Yeah. Um, Certain um, minority viewpoints on both sides of the spectrum are much um, more well represented on Twitter than they are um, in in the real world, quote unquote, quote unquote, real world in America. Um, but I think that actually uh, is a critique that goes too far. What we like to say internally here is that yeah. um, Twitter is actually upstream of real life. And so, like you were saying, you can get a glimpse of like where real life is going um, six months to a year ahead of time based on what people are talking about um, on Twitter. And so, one, you can anticipate things. You can help guide it where and, and nudge it in a good direction, which we think is a good direction of help being helpful for policymakers. Um, and then just you just all you need to do is keep in the back of your mind a reminder this is not representative of Americans, but it is representative of like a lot of elite elite discourse in at least DC politics or like New York media. Um, and so if you're saying a policy is popular, uh, you should definitely check opinion polling and like do adjustments for. Um, all sorts of things that make opinion polling uh, distorted, but you definitely shouldn't, you shouldn't just poll Twitter, but participating in that discourse and helping nudge it in certain directions is extremely important. Yeah. So, so again, yeah, I took, sorry, I, I, uh, I no, digress, but yeah, going back to your, your first thoughts and you know, your impression in the first week, week or so doing this. Yeah. So everybody was super supportive. Um, I think we just got 98% positive comments, which, you know, they tell you on the internet, never read the comments because they're usually mostly negative. Um, but yeah, we were extremely grateful. People seem excited about our project, want to help us. Um, the only thing that was most surprising to me was that, um, you know, we have a newsletter, um, we, that on our website a month for monthly updates, we have a contact page and we have our emails listed there for both for individuals and for the organization. We didn't say like, we have an internship program or we need help on X, Y, or Z. We just got flooded with messages. I'm actually still mm. replying. So if you're, if you're listening to this and you had emailed me, I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm, I'm working through the backlog. We got just flooded with messages, people saying, like, I would love to work for free for you and help you on communications or on this research policy area. So I'm excited by your vision. And I didn't expect I expected less than 10 percent of what we actually got in terms of that outreach, because again, we didn't ask for anything in particular. And right now we don't have the capacity to absorb a lot of that. Um, mm -hmm. We want to stay lean. We want to stay um, small, at least for the near term and grow, like grow intentionally um, and, be, and being careful with organizational culture. But it's just been really, really great to hear. I think we've 
tapped a nerve that I, we suspected was there, but now feel more confident. Um, there's a lot of enthusiasm and energy for these kinds of organizations. Um, and yeah, and I think people uh, just were really well receptive to the ideas we had, um, which again, I was hopeful of, but it's great to get that confirmation in the first week. Um, and then, yeah, and we're in, and it was a fortuitous time because we've been working behind the scenes on a lot of things like the reconciliation bill, um, another piece of legislation, but now also that the House just released the Competes Act, which is the partner of USICA, the United States Innovation Competition Act, previously in Endless Frontiers Act. For listeners who don't care about acronyms, this is just like the most important science and innovation legislation in like the last 30 years in DC, if it passes. And there's bipartisan support for it. And so the House just released their partner bill for this. And we're like digging in the trenches, talking to partners. Caleb's taking lead on that for us. Um, coordinating how can we improve this legislation, make it better for the issues we care about, particularly meta-science and immigration. Um, and then I think two days ago also, Senator Patty Murray and Senator Richard Burr's um, bipartisan bill released a biosecurity bill that's going to hopefully um, make a lot of improvements on, on, on the future, preventing future pandemics front. And so Nikki, Taryn, our biosecurity person is diving into that as well. So mm. it's all hands on deck. It's exciting. It's busy. Um, yeah. And we're, we're feeling good. Yeah. I, I know you talked about the Competes Act a little bit on Twitter. You said it's uh, potentially, you know, the very important uh, uh, bill for, for meta science. Can you talk about what, what's in it? Uh, what are the basic, what are the basics and what are you most excited about and what potentially can be even better? Yeah. So uh, just to take one example um, to start on the immigration front, um, it's uh, in increasing the number of uh, uh, STEM immigrants. So currently the legislation says that if you have a, a STEM PhD um, you can uh, get a waiver to, to immigrate to the United States um, and bypass a lot of the uh, bureaucratic processes there. And we think that's a, a great ad. Like you run the numbers, the value of a, a STEM PhD to the United States economy, um, especially in sensitive areas like semiconductors or artificial intelligence, like just hugely valuable um, for frontier technologies. We think that could be improved by expanding it to master's students. Um, so my colleague Caleb found uh, an interesting statistic that if you look at TSMC, which is the world-leading um, chips manufacturer in Taiwan, um, only 5% of their global workforce has, PhD, has a PhD mm. and 43% have a master's. So mm -hmm. a plurality of their workforce has a master's. Um, and so if that's the kind of, kind of workforce you want to be bringing to the United States and building with companies like Intel and, and many others in the semiconductor um, uh, space, then we need to make sure that our immigration policy matches that. And so there are um, national security uh, interest waivers that you can do to get around this process, um, as well as different kinds of green cards that we could um, make much larger or even uncapped um, for these kind of uh, educated experts that we, we really would like to see. Uh -huh. So you're, so the, the, it's immigration. Is there anything else in Competes that's, that's really exciting um, on the uh, uh, how we fund science or anything like that? Yes. I mean, here's another thing. A lot of, a lot of competes is about just increasing overall science funding. We think there's a really compelling argument just from basic econ 101 of our, our basic research, basic R&D is a public good, right? Mm -hmm. If left totally to the market because the time horizon for returns are so far out in the future, like basic research might not become commercializable for decades. Um, and it's so hard to know what will pay off um, for the private market that they'll be underinvested and underfunded by the private sector. So we think that, um, you know, Public R&D as a percentage of GDP has been falling for the last uh, 50 years. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that the federal government, you know, in the space age, um, 60, 50s and 60s, was funding two-thirds of R&D in the United States and private sector was only one-third. That mm -hmm. has flipped now, where it's now the private sector is funding two-thirds. 
And so we think there's room to do to increase the funding. And then the tweak on the margin that we would like to see that again, Caleb is taking lead on is doing some kind of like scientific lottery. So mm-hmm. instead of you know, doing a very bureaucratic process where, um, you know, uh, PIs, primary investigators of, of research projects spend more than 40% of their time just on paperwork, on yeah. not on active research. It's a huge waste of their time. And it's not clear at all that this, all this paperwork and, and bureaucracy is actually leading to better research. And so we need more evidence to show that, to, sh- to prove that. We suspect it, but we need, to, we need to prove it, right? So one thing we can do that other countries like New Zealand have done is reserve a small portion of R&D funding for a lottery program where if you got denied funding, um, you get put in the lottery and then, you know, you fund a small portion of those. And then if you can show that the people who win the lottery do at least as well, potentially yeah. better than those who didn't win the lottery, then you can say, what is the value of this entire bureaucratic process we have? Right. And we, and in New Zealand, that process went very well. We think it could work in an American context also. Um, so we need, we're advocating for inserting a pilot program for a scientific lottery. Um, this is again, the, the meta science means applying the scientific method to how we fund science itself. And so it's doing more experimentation, randomization, diversification to see like what works? How do we get more breakthrough research? How do we um, make science go faster? And a lottery would be a, a good first step. Yeah. A nice incremental improvement. Yeah. This reminds me, I've been talking to uh, recently Phil Tetlock and uh, Robin Hansen about prediction markets in government. And their story is basically that, you know, they had a theory similar to yours. You would show, you get prediction markets, you'd show that they're, you know, better than the way things are doing now. And, um, you know, then people would be convinced by them. And they're, I think that they basically found is, you know, prediction markets show themselves better than the intelligence community or whatever. And so they just shut it down. <laughs> they just say, enough of that, your nerd stuff, you know, we, let's go back to the way things were. So, yeah, it's always a, a danger in, in public policy. Yeah, yeah. I think that definitely that, that I, I'm familiar with that history as well. And that, that definitely has a risk of happening. But I would say it's almost like we went through a prediction markets winter. And maybe it's, I'm in a bubble, but I feel like there's a lot of renewed enthusiasm and funding for really cool projects in prediction yeah. markets. Um, a lot of them are like, like currently like there's no there's no real money at stake. Something like Metaculus is a, a market that I see a lot cited, um, but there's no actual real money at stake. There is real money on Predict It for election stuff. There is real money on Betfair in the UK. Um, again, mostly for elections. But I'm very optimistic about if you expand this just beyond um, you know political horse races and yeah. the more policy effects and outcomes um, that we can see a lot of things. And then there are, there are crypto prediction markets that are currently less regulated. Um, that might be able to provide useful information as well. Uh-huh. And so it feels like a, we've exited the winter on that topic, but maybe I'm in a bubble. Yeah. Well, I mean, policy can help here because the predicted has, you know, $850 limit on each bet, right? I don't know which agency you have to go to or which law you, sh- you need to pass to just get government out of the way and stop putting those limits and let, you know, letting people build uh, prediction markets and freedom. But, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's an issue you guys could work out. I think there'd be a great, uh, great return to that. Yeah, I definitely think there's yeah, that's a great point, and it's definitely in our wheelhouse. I believe that one is um, Commodities Futures and Trading um, Commission (CFTC). Okay. Um, yeah, we didn't do, we haven't we haven't commissioned any research on that area yet, but yeah, um, re- relaxing the rules on th- that sort of thing would be extremely useful because again, prediction markets are a form of a public good, and having that information out there, like I think it's interesting that in my just take one example um, in my bubble on Twitter. There's an extremely high confidence that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. People talk as if it's like a 90% plus mm-hmm. outcome. That could be correct. I don't know. But I think it's interesting. And I have no expertise in this area, so I'm not making a prediction myself. 
But I think it's interesting that on Metaculus, I checked yesterday, Metaculus is only at 52%. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not real money, so who knows? At 52% for Russia to invade at any point this year before the end of 2022. Yeah. Um, they could be wrong. If they're real money at stake, maybe you get a different outcome. But it's a, it's a good, like, just kind of reality check of, like, is my Twitter bubble overconfident in the odds? Yeah, but it's hard to know what, what the odds are because I think we follow a lot of the same people on Twitter. And I don't know if it's, like, 90 if like fifty So it's, like, a 50% chance there's going to be a war. That's huge, right? And so, right, it's are, huge, yeah. Yeah. so are they talking in a way that's uh, consistent with a 50% belief or a 90% belief? It's very hard for me to tell. Like when they say Russia is probably going to invade Ukraine, like 50% is a big deal and, you know, a chance of having a war. So do they think if you had to actually force them, I mean, that's the problem. You don't really know. Yeah, exactly. Like I can't say it sounds like 90% or 70% or, or whatever. I just have no way. They just think it's, you know, there's a very good chance and that's all we can mm-hmm. say. So yeah, prediction markets help you uh, uh, sort of near on that. So yes, I do hope you guys, I do hope you guys work on that. I think that could be, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, probably, you know, not a lot of political resistance to it and something that can do uh, a lot of good. Um let me ask you just a question on biosecurity. So do you feel like, you know, this is uh, my thinking of COVID has gone sort of in a, uh, you know, it's developed over the the course of the pandemic. Early, I was like big into, you know, state capacity and, you know, we needed to do a better job and all this stuff. And then I saw, you know, some aspects of state capacity, actually, you know, I, I saw that we were not very good at doing cost benefit analysis and like this, like, you know, and so in, in that context, like, you know, state capacity can be a double-edged sword. It could be good or it could even be bad. So something like Omicron, right? Um, you know, it's it's more mild. Um, you know, we caught it early. So we shut down travel from these con- from these countries. You know, we, we uh, disincentivized them from, uh, uh, from tracking new variants. And then we, you know, did more uh, NPIs, which I think, you know, the cost benefit on those don't make a lot of sense. And if we just never known that Omicron existed um, or we weren't finding new variants, you know, maybe we'd avoid some damaging policies. Do you worry about like, like our ability to do cost-benefit analysis and whether more state capacity um, can actually make policy worse um, if we don't get that fundamental issue right? It's certainly possible. Um, but I think at the federal level, the thing you want, I, mean, like, I, I know that a lot of um, more libertarian-leaning folks are wor- worried about state capacity just in terms of yeah, like lockdowns, the ability to restrict freedoms. Um, when I think of state capacity, especially in the context of CDC and FDA, what I'm thinking of as more competence and independent decision-making and the ability to uh, think long-term and anticipate future problems. And so this often, you know, uh, I, th- I, I would style that as a, a form of state capacity and to use the variance example, right? So I think probably the single most effective policy of the entire pandemic has been Operation Warp Speed. Mm-hmm. It got us three safe and effective vaccines in about nine months when you know, the average expected time is years if, if, if a vaccine is ever um, produced for a, a novel um, virus. And so you know, amazing success, beat almost everyone's expectations. Um, and the reason it was able so, so successful is because it leveraged the demand pull uh, power of the federal government. It's de-risking it for those manufacturers of saying, look, we are c- credibly committing to buying um, hundreds of millions of doses of a safe and effective vaccine it's kind of easy to measure like what safe and effective is. You know, some, a lot of innovations like the next iPhone, like it's hard to describe like what that will look like. But for a vaccine, you know how to measure like in a clinical trial what safe and effective look like. Um, and so it's, it's a perfect kind of candidate for uh, advanced market commitments, this idea of, of promising, credibly committing ahead of time to purchase large quantities of a, a good or service. And we could have, should have done more. We need to do more of that. We need yeah. operational warpsy for a lot more things. And so I'm thinking of rapid tests. I'm thinking of, you know, medical masks, we need to be stockpiling these things so they're really accessible. 
Obviously, the core problem here on at least rapid tests was that we didn't authorize enough vendors. In the peak of the Delta wave, we only authorized three manufacturers in the United States, and dozens and dozens were available in the UK and the EU. Um, again, they're not risk they're not um, risk seeking; they're risk averse as well, and they're um, highly developed countries. But they just authorized more manufacturers, and rapid tests were available for um, dollars or given away you know, a few dollars or given away for free by the government. Yeah, and so. The ability to anticipate problems, stockpile appropriately, and use demand pull mechanisms like innovation prizes, um, advanced market commitments, milestone payments, things like that. That's the kind of state capacity that I, we're definitely interested in building up um, within FDA and CDC. Yeah, I, I get that. And I, I you know, I, I trust you guys and sort of your, you know, ideas on these things. I just, uh, you know, I, I just worry about our politics. Sometimes I worry like there's only like, it's like a, you know, a binary thing. Either you're like at zero, not worrying about it or one, you know, you're worrying about right. it and you're trying to do something smart, which is do the cost benefit analysis, do the stuff that works and don't do the stuff that not works. And, you know, I, I trust you on pushing on that. I just, I just so worry that like, you know, maybe we have to go to zero or one and, you know, that, that that's totally, a, yeah. that's a pessimistic. That's a yeah. That's a pessimistic view of our politics, but yeah, you're trying to make our politics better. So you're not going to, you're not going to be as pessimistic as me, obviously about what we can do. Uh, so, yeah. So Alec, but I, you're only, again, this is like day eight. And so I, you know, I'm mindful of your time. I appreciate you taking this, uh, this time, uh, this time with us. So I, you know, I'll let you go. Um, is there just my final question is, you know, what, what's your uh, metrics of uh, success? How will, you know, five, 10 years from now, what's your sort of uh, median projection? What would make you happy and what would make you think, you know, you didn't, live up to your potential. Um, how do you think about, you know, sort of success and then over the next five, 10 years, whatever your time frame is? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I can answer that on two margin. One, well, inputs and outputs. Again, ideally, you just measure outputs, uh, policy impact. It's, it's extremely hard to know what the counterfactual scenario is, though we can't run randomized control trials on uh, U.S. policymakers and how we, how we impact them. Um, but I would say having, you know, at least a few handful of um, concrete case studies per year of how we actually move the needle on immigration, biosecurity, meta science. Um, so we can point to particular pieces of legislation or particular rulemakings that, you know, we can see the fingerprints of our, our language in the actual um, laws that are passed. And a lot of that is, you know, things we can't talk about publicly necessarily, but if we can prepare case studies for our stakeholders and say, you know, we talked to X person, we provided them with Y information that led to Z outcome, um, you can kind of paint a story of like how you actually are having policy impact and guessing the counterfactual would have been worse for the U.S. policymaking process. So that's the ideal way we'll measure ourselves is actually just moving the needle on policy. Um, another way to do that is measuring inputs. And so um, our maximum long run steady state goal for the organization is to be up to 50 people, um, which is not that large for DC thinking. The biggest ones have hundreds of people, Mercatus, Brookings, AEI, have hundreds and hundreds of employees. Um, we think with our alternative model with being a Twitter first, internet first, you know, new principles from the ground up organization, our goal is to have the impact of a Brookings with one tenth their size. And so we want to hire only superstars. We want to have people who can really lead an area for us and just kind of take over and be pretty autonomous. So we're not going to have a lot of management, minimal bureaucracy, minimum viable bureaucracy is the phrase we're using internally because you have to have some of it, obviously. Um, and then leveraging partnerships. So um, instead of, you know, hiring dozens and dozens more people, can we work with other organizations and partner with them to have policy impact? And so um, if we're roughly that size, having the level of Brookings impact uh, and there are particular case studies that we can point to of how we actually change policy, um, then I'll be really happy. Yeah. 
Great. So is there anything, um, you know, you want to tell people before, before we go, you know, where can people find you? I mean, is there uh, just anything else you'd like to say before we go? For sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. This has been a great conversation. Um, and I'll just say to, to your audience, please do check out our work. Um, our web domain is progress.institute. Um, our organization is called, again, the Institute for Progress. Um, and then our handle on Twitter is just the acronym IFP. So go ahead and follow us on Twitter there. Um, subscribe to our newsletter. It's free. It's once a month. It'll be um, a short just update for you. And yeah, um, we look forward to, to seeing you all out there. And, on the on the Twitters and in the discourse. <laughs> yeah, and you know you didn't plug your own individual Twitter, but Alex Twitter is great. And then uh, Caleb uh, Caleb uh, Watney, right? Watney. Yep. Watney. Yeah, you can you can find their Twitters, and yeah, we'll, we'll we'll post the links to that. Yeah, Alec, you know, thank you very much for joining us. It was it was a great conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Richard.